From Bodimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. The Black Widow. In 1992, an investigation begins concerning a shocking case. It won't be concluded until the first decade of the 21st century. It's the case of a woman who, like a spider, catches more and more people into her web of lies and manipulation. In many aspects, this will turn out to be an unprecedented case in the history of Danish criminology. You're listening to an episode of Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime, a podcast series about true crimes in Scandinavia. Everything you will hear is based on fact. Material collected and prepared by Martin Highlander. Early morning, 27th of December 1992. We're in the North Jutland region of Denmark, where a phone rings at the police station in the Danish city of Aalborg. Someone reports a fire in the residential area of a small town, Beersted, located to the west of the city. The anonymous caller is afraid that Carsten the resident of the burning house, is still inside. After arriving at the scene, the policemen and the firefighters manage to get inside the house. Such big fires are rare in this peaceful town, so onlookers gather fast. Beersted was a quiet place you could get to by train until 1969. Now it's an ordinary small town with about 1,600 inhabitants, a church, a school, and a few medium-sized companies. The firefighters and the policemen at the site are trying to get inside the house, but it's not easy. Both doors are locked. Finally, they pry the door open with a crowbar. The firefighters enter the house and realize the fire is too big to see anything, let alone find anyone. A special rescue team are able to get in. They find a body in the bedroom and carry it outside. When the body is laid on the grass in front of the house, A knife is found stuck into the right side of the victim's neck. Dr. Hamburger is summoned from Aalborg to examine the body. He quickly establishes that the victim is Carsten Christensen, the owner of the house, and that he was murdered. Multiple cuts and stab wounds are found, so Carsten's body is transported to a forensic institute for an autopsy to explain how Carsten was killed. Further examination reveals that the person who stabbed Carsten in the neck also tried to strangle him. The autopsy reveals effusions in Carsten's eyeballs and a hyoid bone fracture. But it is difficult to determine how exactly Carsten Christensen died. As the house was filled with smoke, there's a deadly amount of carbon monoxide in the victim's blood. The presence of carbon monoxide in his blood suggests Carsten was alive when the fire started. Death may have been the result of the number of serious stab wounds, but also of the injuries caused by strangulation. And let's not forget about the carbon monoxide. A lot of things about this crime show that the perpetrator was extremely brutal, and the autopsy results suggest the murderer wanted to be absolutely certain that Carsten would die. Assuming that Carsten tried to defend himself and injured the perpetrator in the process, a sample of the material from under his nails is collected during the autopsy. It is expected the material contains the perpetrator's skin, which could be used to prepare a DNA profile of the killer. But further examination reveals that the material is not suitable for testing. So, 
Now solving this brutal crime is up to the Aalborg police. The most pressing questions are why Carsten Christensen was murdered and who could have done it. A special unit is formed to secure the crime scene and any traces that could reveal information needed for solving the case. The house had been seriously damaged by the fire and the bedroom is totally burned. The corridor and the area near the entrance have also been badly damaged and the other rooms are full of soot, which makes securing evidence more difficult. But the investigators managed to determine the fire started near the bed. Many samples are taken from the bedroom and sent to the Danish Technological Institute. Analysis suggests that no flammable liquids were used to make the fire spread faster. The bedroom window is almost entirely burnt, but the neighbors claim it had been opened before the firefighters arrived. Experts deduced that the window might have been damaged in the fire, and that's why it was opened. The police are not able to determine if the perpetrator got into the house through the window or whether Carsten had invited them inside. They are trying to find out who might have had a key to Carsten's house. Police officers check the kitchen and discover a rack with a set of matching knives, and one of them is missing. It might be the knife they found stuck in Carsten's neck. That suggests the perpetrator didn't bring the murder weapon with them. In the kitchen, the forensic technicians find an ashtray with some cigarette butts. If Carsten let the perpetrator in, it is possible they sat in the kitchen together before the crime happened. It might be possible to determine the perpetrator's DNA profile from the cigarettes. Fingerprint experts who arrive from Copenhagen find 20 hand and fingerprints. The evidence is good enough for analysis. But all the prints belong to family members and neighbors who visited Carsten over the last few days. In the end, the forensic analysis doesn't yield any new information about the perpetrator. There are no fingerprints or DNA traces that would make the investigation easier. And this case will turn out to be much more difficult than expected. Alborg police lead the investigation along with a special mobile police unit. One of the most serious problems is that a lot of potential evidence was lost in the fire, so it's virtually impossible to determine how the perpetrator got inside. Did they get in through the door or the window? Knowing how the perpetrator entered the house would be helpful in determining what their relationship was to Carsten. Was Carsten just a random victim, or was his relationship with the perpetrator the motive for the crime? Even though the police don't know how the perpetrator got inside, they doubt it was a robbery killing, as no valuable items were stolen. And besides, Carsten wasn't a very rich man. In fact, even though he was only 35, a serious spine problem caused by a work accident had forced him to retire early. Carsten had two daughters, aged 13 and 15. They didn't live with him, but with their mother, Bente Christensen, who split up with Carsten and moved out before he was murdered. Bente still lives in Beersted, but she moved in with another man, John Peterson. According to the law, Carsten is still her husband because they never divorced. Benta's new partner is only 18 years old, while she is 34. Their age difference is not insignificant. Carsten and Benta's teenage daughters don't fully accept their mother's new relationship. Benta is a childminder, taking care of children in her own house, and suffers from rheumatoid arthritis, 
which is gradually increasing her physical difficulties. Benta's atypical relationship encourages the police to take a closer look at her and John's situation. The investigators have a few theories and questions. Is it possible that the couple murdered Carsten? And if yes, why? The next day, the 28th of December 1992, the police decide to search Benta and John's home. Meanwhile, the couple is being questioned again, but no new information is found. The police seize John's car for forensic examination. They're hoping to find evidence which could be linked to the crime scene. For example, there could be blood found on the floor mats, the steering wheel, or on the driver's seat, assuming the victim's blood was on John's clothes. The investigators ask John what he was wearing the evening before Carsten's death and which clothes were washed during the night. But John has trouble recalling the information. Both he and Benta seem surprised and shocked by Carsten's murder. Nothing suggests they could have had anything to do with the crime. That day, the police also questioned the younger daughter, who was home with Benta and John the night Carsten was murdered. She says she had been reading in bed up to 4am, and that she is certain neither Benta nor John left the house that night. So, Benta and John do have an alibi. Benta's older daughter wasn't at home that evening. Due to a disagreement between her and John, she is temporarily staying at her friend's. Benta and John's alibi is not the only problem. There is no clear motive. Benta says she no longer has the key to Carsten's house. Furthermore, Benta and John have no criminal records. Despite all that, the police doubt whether the pair are innocent. Why was the washing machine in Benta and John's house turned on in the middle of the night? Were they trying to wash blood off the clothes they had worn at the crime scene? And it's interesting that the neighbours saw John in his car in front of the house at night. John claimed he was there because he'd had an argument with Benta, and that later he came home and went to bed. But it seems a little odd. If not them, who else could have had an opportunity to kill Carsten? Benta is a short, slender woman with rheumatoid arthritis but she has a strong personality and makes quite an impression on those around her, especially on men. She is dominant and has a strong influence over 18-year-old John, whom the police consider slightly limited in his mental capacity and immature in many areas. Friends and family members claim that Benta has significant emotional and physical needs. It is clear that after Carsten started having health problems, he was not able to satisfy those needs. That was probably why she became involved in an affair with John. Many neighbours and friends tell the police that Bent is dominant, extremely manipulative, and scheming. Even some of Carsten's relatives think so. Carsten's brother is certain Benta is responsible for the murder, while Benta herself claims Carsten was killed by his brother. But family arguments are not the whole picture. During the investigation, the police find out that Carsten isn't the father of Benta's younger daughter, a fact he had been unaware of. And Benta had previously had sexual contact with Carsten's brother, the same man she now suspects of having killed her husband. Gradually, the police realize that Benta has a personality disorder. Her domination and manipulation are the most apparent in her relationship with her daughters. Benta doesn't let anyone or anything stand between her and her children. 
Despite having a relationship with John, she'd like her daughters to live with her. The investigators start wondering if Bente's relationship with her daughters could have been the motive for killing Carsten. The police plant a bug in the house and put a tap on their phone, but they are of no use. Nothing indicates, directly or indirectly, that Benta and John had anything to do with the crime. The couple are questioned again, but to no avail. There's not enough evidence to draw up charges against Benta and John, but there are no other suspects that could be connected to the crime. The officers are disappointed when after many months of investigation, the case of Carsten Christensen's brutal murder must be suspended. But something happens on Sunday the 16th of June 2002 at 8.56am, almost 10 years after the murder, and the investigators return to the case. The Alborg police are notified that a man was shot on a staircase of a residential building in downtown Alborg. The officers arrive at the scene. The victim is Dan Jensen, 29 years old. After being shot, Dan managed to get to the hospital by himself, but died after reaching the emergency room. The police quickly realize that the person responsible for what looks like murder is none other than Benta Christensen. Apprehending Benta, who fled from the crime scene in her car, requires a large-scale police operation. The murder in Alborg is more obvious than the one in Beersted, and when Benta is arrested, it turns out she has spent shotgun cartridges on her. There is no doubt she was the one who shot Dan Jensen. She confesses as much shortly after she is detained, but the explanation is not as simple as it seems. Despite the fact that Benta had already confessed to having killed Dan, she now claims it was an accident, not murder. The question is, what role did Benta Christensen from Beersted play in the crime in Aalborg? The murder in Beersted happened ten years earlier. Since then, the life of Benta's family has changed a lot. In 1992, Benta moved from Beersted to a flat in Aalborg. She no longer lives with John, but there's still a couple, and he often visits her. Benta's younger daughter is now the mother of a small girl, whose father is the late Dan Jensen. Benta's relationship with her daughter and granddaughter is very close. All three live together in the same building in Alborg. Benta's younger daughter broke up with Dan Jensen before the birth of their daughter. After the breakup, Dan had to fight for the right to have contact with his child. Both Benta and her daughter did all they could to make that impossible. During the hearing in family court, Benta and her daughter lose the case to Dan. The court decides that to start with, Dan can only have contact with his child in her mother's presence. But from the 16th of June, the day of the murder, the contact will be unsupervised. The court's decision worries and angers Benta. But Benta is not a person who could be stopped by fear. She decides it's time to act. Years ago, her friend hid a shotgun in the attic of the house where she lived, and she knows Dan is on his way to pick up his daughter. Benta is preparing for his visit. A little earlier that day, Benta unsuccessfully tried to contact Dan. She wanted to warn him not to visit his daughter. Benta is ready, sitting in her apartment, 
waiting for Dan. She can see the street through the window, so she knows when Dan arrives and is ready to greet him. When Dan enters the staircase and goes up the stairs, Benter leaves her flat and meets him on the landing. She is holding the shotgun, hiding it under a blanket thrown over her shoulder. Dan suspects nothing. It is impossible to say what exactly happened next. Benter claimed that she only wanted to scare Dan and that it was an accident. The prosecution has a different opinion, that it was a premeditated murder. One thing is certain, Benter shot Dan in the middle of his chest. When the police question her, Benter claims she didn't know the gun was loaded. The investigators find the gun's owner, but he, too, denies that the gun was loaded. That day, though, Benter had more cartridges on her, which undermines her credibility. Everything suggests that she was prepared and ready to use the gun to kill her former son-in-law. The case is a chance to return to the Beersted murder. For many years after filing the case away, the police had been hoping that new information would emerge. Over the years, that hope waned. But now, the old question returns. Could Benter be the person that killed Carsten? in 1992. Even if it seems it can be proved that Benta killed her former son-in-law, nothing indicates she had killed her husband too. During the investigation, a detained foreign citizen reports that he has interesting information about the case. The man says that he knows it was John who killed Carsten. He also claims that in 1999, he often visited Benta and her daughter when they lived in a rented flat in Alborg. During the investigation, Benta allegedly asked if he would help her to get rid of John. Benta told the foreign citizen that John killed her husband, Carsten Christensen. She said the murder was brutal. John stabbed her husband with a knife and then set the house on fire. In the same conversation, Benta assured him that she had nothing to do with the murder. On the contrary, she claimed she loved her husband and wanted to avenge him. She offered 100,000 kroner, about 12,000 pounds, for killing John, 50,000 in advance and 50,000 after finishing the job. Even though he is surprised by this middle-aged lady's offer, he accepts it. At that point... He is not certain if he will do it alone or recruit someone, and suggests someone from Germany. Benta meets the German who agrees to kill John. Later, when the German is arrested, he confesses he was never planning to go through with it, and claims he only wanted to get the 50,000 kroner advanced payment. After hiring the German to kill John, Benta and her younger daughter leave Denmark and go to Canada. Benta doesn't mention her trip to John or to her older daughter. That is why they report that Benta and her younger daughter are missing. After a few days, Benta and her younger daughter return home. When the police ask why they left the country so abruptly, neither Benta nor her daughter can answer the question. The police are more and more certain that Benta and possibly one of her daughters wanted to get rid of John because he had killed Carsten. Eliminating John would also free her from any ties to Carsten's murder. 
The foreign citizen's testimony gives the police a reason to return to the Beersted case. Finally, they have a lead they can follow. The police get to work and ask for Benter's explanation again, taking notes and comparing them to the foreign citizen's testimony. Benter admits that on the night of the murder in 1992, John could have been out of the house for a long time, and that when he came back, his hair was wet. It could be proved that he was outside, and not just sitting in his car, as had been stated earlier. Benter is asked why she is only now revealing this information. She replies that she had wanted to protect John, and had not wanted to suspect him without good reason. Benter also tells the police she was convinced John was innocent. But now, she's starting to doubt it. The newly acquired evidence seems enough to accuse John of Kirsten's murder. That evening, the police go to his house to apprehend him. John is at work, so the officers have to wait a few hours for him to get back. They follow him into his house and say that they want to talk to him about Kirsten's case. John falls silent and slumps onto the sofa, hiding his face in his hands. He doesn't utter a word for several minutes. Now the investigators are even more convinced that they have found the culprit. When the initial shock passes, John totally changes. He's composed, and his actions are clear. He changes his clothes and is transported to the police station in Alborg. On the way, the policemen try to get some information out of John, but he's quiet and only stares through the car window. On the basis of the newly found information, John is officially charged with the murder of Carsten. John pleads not guilty. He wants to testify only in the presence of a lawyer. When a lawyer is appointed, after a short conversation and with the lawyer's help, John explains that he didn't commit the crime. John is put in jail in Hobro. After a few days, it seems he's thought some things through. It's not clear what finally made him talk. Maybe he was afraid he would have to deal with the murder charge alone. Or maybe he wanted to share the truth tormenting him. It's the 21st of November, 2002. John confesses what he did. With tears in his eyes, he explains that killing Carsten was very difficult for him. Carsten had always been nice to him, and the two never quarreled. But John was forced to do what he did. He claims Carsten was a peaceful man who had no enemies. Even the breakup with Benta was quiet, and there was no disagreements between the three of them. There was only one problem. Back in 1992, it seemed possible that Carsten might be granted custody of both his daughters. Benta was in despair. She was the only one supposed to have custody of her children. That is why she insisted that John kill Carsten. She threatened that if he refused, she would leave him. The ultimatum seemed absurd to John, but he quickly understood that Benta wasn't joking. Carsten had to be disposed of. Benta's vision is put into action. Step by step, she guides John through the murder plan. She gives him the key to Carsten's house. Benta also tells him what clothes to wear and how to get rid of them. She says it's supposed to look like an accident. According to the plan, John is to kill Carsten and then set the house on fire. It will look as if Carsten fell asleep and the fire started because of a cigarette butt. 
That's why Carsten has to be murdered in his bedroom, and there can be no signs of brutality. Benta decides Carsten must be strangled. John quickly realizes that planning a murder is one thing, but going through with it is another. On the day of the murder, John gets into Carsten's house and finds him in his bed as expected. That's when the plan falls apart. When John launches himself at the victim, Carsten counterattacks. And John is simply too weak to strangle Carsten. He dashes to the kitchen as fast as he can and grabs a knife from the rack. Meanwhile, Carsten is trying to escape through the bedroom window. He fails, and a fight ensues. John manages to incapacitate Carsten and repeatedly stabs him with a meat knife. Then John sets fire to a stack of old newspapers he finds near the bed, which he later confesses he did in total panic. John quickly leaves the scene and locks the door behind him. When he returns home, Bender washes the clothes he had been wearing. She puts his outerwear and shoes into a bag and hides it in the attic. Later, they both go to sleep and don't mention what happened that evening again. In the morning, they are woken by the police. They pretend to be surprised by the news of the fire and Carsten's death. John also confesses that a few days later, he and Benta go to a peat bog to get rid of the clothes he wore on the night of the murder. They first try to burn the evidence, but come to the conclusion that it would take too long and simply throw the bag into some bushes at the far end of the peat bog. John describes the exact location where they disposed of the clothing and shoes, and the police later managed to find the evidence. The investigators and the police are pleased. The Beersted murder case is almost solved. There's one more thing they are still thinking about. The main character of this story, Benta. She keeps denying she had anything to do with the murder. Benta claims she didn't order anyone to kill Carsten, that she loved her husband and was shocked and angry that John killed him. The police and the prosecutor's office have a different opinion. They believe John more than her. Maybe John was the person who held the knife, but not the one who orchestrated the crime. Benta is the culprit who pulls John into her web of lies and murderous thoughts. It's clear to the investigators that Benta Christensen is responsible for two murders and an attempted murder, hiring someone to kill John. Having interpreted the circumstances that way, the prosecutor brings the case to court. John is charged with murder. Over time, this will turn out to be the most important court case of the decade. The public nickname Benta, the Black Widow. Partly because the females of that spider species kill the males after mating, and partly because of a Norwegian serial killer, Brunhilda Polsdata Sturzeth, who emigrated to the USA at the end of the 19th century. Using different aliases, she murdered about 40 men, whom she met through personal ads. Her actions later served as inspiration for many films and novels. The most well-known film is Black Widow, starring Deborah Winger and Dennis Hopper. The media loves the term Black Widow. It's catchy and promises readers and viewers a thrill. Of course, it can be questioned whether that name fits Benta. Is she really a Black Widow? wrapping men in her web of lies and deception to dispose of later? Opinions vary, but there is no doubt the prosecutors are convinced that Benta operates like a cruel female 
of that dangerous spider species. She is in control, and John is just a naive, immature young man who got caught in her web. Benta's younger daughter doesn't agree with that interpretation and claims that John is the one guilty of Carsten's murder. She thinks Dan's death was an accident and that Benta was never planning to kill John. During the trial, the daughter testifies, quote, My mother is ashamed of killing Dan. She didn't want to kill him, only to scare him so that he would treat me and my daughter decently. For about six or seven years, John was a great burden to our family. He was a tyrant who was driving my mother mad. I am certain that after John confessed that he killed my father, the police didn't bother to take a closer look at his misanthropic nature. I'm convinced John is the only one responsible for killing my father. He simply didn't want to be punished alone, and he tried to get revenge on my mother. So the younger daughter believed in her mother's innocence. And besides, Benta denied all charges and confessed, quote, I am not guilty of those serious charges, but I destroyed many people's lives. However, the court in Aalborg doesn't agree with Benta and her daughter. In September 2003, Benta is sentenced to life imprisonment for double murder and an attempted murder. John Peterson is sentenced to 10 years in prison for killing Carsten Christensen. The light sentence is justified by John's young age at the time the crime was committed and the fact that he had never committed a punishable offence before. The jury thinks Benta persuaded him to commit the crime. That counts as extenuating circumstances. After the sentence is passed, Carsten's family feels relieved. I always knew it was her. Even though she's such a good actress, she could win an Oscar. Now, we can move on with our lives. Carsten's brother says to the press after the sentence was passed, Benta Christensen is the second woman sentenced to life imprisonment in the recent history of Danish law. But the case is not over yet. Benta keeps fighting and immediately makes an appeal against the sentence to the Supreme Court. And in the next few months, the press criticizes the police work. Did John Peterson get special treatment? Did the police try to make a deal with him to get Benta? After all, the sentence was based solely on John's testimony. There's virtually no physical evidence proving Benta's guilt. The following year, the case is examined by the Supreme Court and the sentence is passed on the 7th of January, 2004. The Supreme Court revokes the life sentence passed by the District Court. Benta is sentenced to 16 years in prison for killing Carsten Christensen and Dan Jensen, but the charge of John Peterson's attempted murder is rejected as there is not enough evidence, which is crucial for the case. The Supreme Court comes to the conclusion that killing the husband was a crime of passion. In such cases, the Danish judiciary automatically commutes the sentence. But if Bente was charged with hiring someone to do the killing, as was ruled by the district court, it would not be considered a crime of passion. It would have been a premeditated crime, and that would mean life imprisonment. The Supreme Court affirms John Peterson's sentence, 10 years in prison. Thus ends the Black Widow case, unprecedented in Danish history. Despite that, 
people still wonder whether Bente Christensen was acting under the influence of her emotions for several days when she was planning Karsten Christensen's murder? And can we talk about passion in reference to her killing Dan Jensen, her former son-in-law? These questions would be difficult to answer. One thing is certain. Bente's motive is different than those most often seen in other male serial killers. In Bente's case, the ruthless side of her personality was revealed because of her love for her children and grandchildren, and that caused her to manipulate the people around her. But no matter which angle we look at it from, the consequences of both types of these deeds are the same. The perpetrators destroy human lives and families. From Podimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. Listen to a new episode every week, wherever you get your podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.